Our Father, Martin in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Dear God, uh, we just want to thank you for what you do and uh, continue to commit yourself to do on our behalf. Lord, we ask that you would empower us uh, with tools and an understanding that would allow us to help others who are struggling with addictions. Um, please help me to disappear and help them to hear your voice. In your holy name we pray. Amen. I think it's on. Everything is on. Yeah. Okay. So, so glad that you all came out. Um, I'm going to move a little or else you guys will fall asleep. Uh, they've blessed me with the most difficult time to speak to an audience, to an Adventist audience. After lunch on Sabbath afternoon, our true moment of rest. Um, but I do want to talk to you about a very exciting topic. Um, it's uh, called the neurobiology of joy. Um, so first off, who am I? So again, my name is Ricardo White, and I'm a addiction psychiatrist, so a psychiatrist specializing in addictions. Um, and I'm the medical director of the chemical dependency unit at Loma Linda University. Um, so I come from Atlantic Union College for any fellow flames out there. Um, I trained at the University of Connecticut for my medical school training. I had the blessing of going to Loma Linda University for my psychiatry training and then uh, UCLA for my addiction psychiatry fellowship. All right. So Do For those of you who are going to want to take notes, for those of you who would like the PDF of my presentation, just in case you just want to relax, um, just email me, and I will email you a PDF. You can't see that, can you? At Gmail. Okay, so that's drwhite at gmail.com. So it's the why that makes the difference. W-H-Y-T-E, okay? Um, and I'll email you a PDF in some kind of timely fashion. All right. So as I was training, the thing I need to do is I need to time myself. Where is a clock? No clock? The sun goes down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, so as I was going through training as a psychiatrist, one of the things I noticed was a number of our more prominent theories um, actually are influenced by Greek mythology. And, and that was a little concerning to me. So as exemplified by the Oedipus complex or the Electra complex, which I'm not going to go into at this point. But nevertheless, people would be coming into me in crisis. And I would actually be treating them influenced 
by theories that were influenced by Greek myths. Now, if you know what a myth is, a myth is something we accept as not true. So I felt that justified me in saying, okay, what if I allowed my approach to patient care to be influenced by God's word? And so it sent me on a very interesting quest. And so I asked myself, because we often hear people say, there is no manual for living. Now, if you get a device that is not complicated, as simple as a stapler, it comes with a manual. So that the notion that we could be entrusted with this big world without being given a manual of how to navigate through it is a preposterous one to me. And so I said, okay, if God were going to put instructions for living, where would he put them? Would he put it in the back of the book, the middle of the book, or would he put it in the beginning? And so I went to the beginning. And as a result of that, it has significantly impacted how I practice medicine. And there's some truths that I want to share with you today. The bottom line of why we're here is we're trying to understand how a person goes from this, let's presume that she's a productive member of society, connected spiritually, and then transitions to this. Okay, that's what we're trying to understand today. So, we are going to approach understanding that by exploring God's original design. As I mentioned, I was trained at the University of Connecticut, and so one of the things we were taught right away was, in order to understand the abnormal, first you want to understand the normal. So we're going to start by understanding what was God's original design. Then we, of course, are going to discuss some of the neurobiological factors that underlay the addictions, things like gambling, sex, and eating. And we're also going to discuss some treatment implications. Hang on to your hats. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Okay. Now, occasionally, occasionally, we experience moments of sobriety. Moments of sobriety. Our world is designed such that those moments are fairly rare. What do I mean by moments of sobriety? Moments when we ask ourselves the meaningful questions of life. What are those questions? Shoot them out. What are those meaningful questions of life? What is my purpose? What was another one? Why am I here? How did I get here? Who but that's the, go ahead. Who do I belong to? Who do I belong to? Whose am I? Critical questions. Can you think of any others? Am I doing my purpose? Am I living my purpose? Am I living my purpose? How do I know that I'm living my purpose? In moments of sobriety, these are the powerful questions that we ask ourselves. Another truth. When we survey our situations, one of the things we notice very quickly is we have infinite needs. Is that controversial? We have needs for health. We have needs for connectedness. We have needs for finances and practical things. We are desperately in need. Okay? So this is the mindset of a sober person who picks up God's word. And the minute you open up God's word and you go to that first verse, it does something extremely important. It says, in the beginning, God created 
the heavens and the earth. There is no book that makes that powerful a declaration. No book that makes that powerful a declaration. And it wastes no time in doing it. Right from jump. It understands exactly the mind of a sober person. The, the important questions you would be asking, and it immediately jumps. We're not playing here. It's as if God is saying, you have come to the right place. In the beginning, God created. Again, we mentioned your needs. Infinite needs. This is not a God that assembles. He creates. You brought your needs to a place of creation. Do you see that? God is not wasting any time in letting you know this is your manual for living. This is important. That book that's gathering dust on our bookshelves. So the other thing I noticed was the process by which he creates. Now, how does God create? Verse 3 says, he spoke and it stood fast. So if he spoke and it stood fast, what that means is he could have said world, humans, animals, so on and so forth, and it would have been. But he doesn't do that. Have you ever wondered why didn't he do that? Instead, you see a process. And so it led me to one of my first theories. What are the chances the process of his creating is a lesson plan in how we should assemble? Because we can't create. We're not God. So if you hear me intermingle the word create, hear assemble. We can't create. I can't bring anything out of scratch, practically speaking. I've got to work with what God gives me. So we can assemble. But God is showing us a process we can follow in how to create. You say, you're crazy, doctor. You've been hanging around with too many of those patients. <laughs> Prove it to me. So he creates by his word. And even in creating by his word, God is teaching something. We talked about it earlier this morning. God is so committed to his word, it has creative power. He is so committed to his word, it has creative power. He is his word. Are you your word? Are you your word? Honey, I promise that I'll never cheat. I won't steal from my taxes. I'll be there at 2.30. Are you your word? God has set the example. He is so committed to his word. It has creative power. Lesson one. Day one. What does God give us on day one? And God said, let there be light. But he's not like us. And there was light. Day one, God gives us light. What is the lesson there? What could possibly be the lesson there? Well, what is light? Why don't we use God's word to define light? In Psalms 119, 105, it reads, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. It shows me where to go. And a light unto my path. 
Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God is shining down on us the reality that we have to use his word as the first step in creating or assembling. That's the first step. And to magnify the point, he dedicates an entire day just to this issue of light. He says, let there be light, and that's it. Like, stew on that. Think about that. It is so critical that you begin to create illuminated by light. God said that's enough for day one. But remember, it's day one. So where does light show up in God's word? Is this a trivial theory? Well, you recall when the Israelites are being rescued. Remember the series of plagues. There was a plague of what? Darkness. I think it was three days. And it was described as a heavy, thick darkness. Right? And so the verse reads, in the, in, 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 in the kingdom of Egypt, there was darkness. But in the children of Israel, there was light. You guys remember that? And again, when they were trapped between the Red Sea and uh, they see Pharaoh's army coming, remember what the cloud did? Cloud picks up, goes over the children of Israel, and descends and separates the, uh, the Egyptians from the children of Israel. And what did it say it did? It became darkness to the Egyptians, but light to the children of Israel. God never leaves his children in darkness. If we're in darkness, we've chosen it. And just in case he didn't beat you over the head with it enough, he pronounces it good. He pronounces it good. Now, I got a question for you. What's the significance of that? I hate sports analogies. <laughs> so we're going to go there, but then we're going to come right back. Please, guys, don't lose, don't lose us. If Michael Jordan the best basketball player in basketball says, these shoes are good. What are you going to do if you play basketball? So it's not a light factor when God says, this is good. Creation principle number one. Be your word and create in the context of light. Part of the problem with our world is you have too many people creating or assembling their lives in the context of darkness. Okay? And, and just if, if you want to understand how terrorizing it is to be in darkness, think about where you sit right now philosophically. Believing that you are a child of the king, a child of God, you're special, you have a purpose. Belief in the context of light. Now, why don't you step out of that light for a minute and tell yourself that we come from some primordial soup, some radical primordial soup, some big bang. Step out of that light for a minute and see how terrifying it would be that we're just some random accident that does not have a defined and glorious purpose. This light that he's given us is a tremendous blessing. That was day one. All right. The next issue is we talk about the creation of space. Recall what it says. He said it separated the waters above from the waters below. What had God essentially done? He had created this little area right here represents this blown up. He had created an atmosphere. And so you see the atmosphere has several layers. 
okay, he had created space. What is the subtle lesson he's teaching us there? If you're going to create something, you've got to create space for your creation. Simple point, right? Simple point, right? We've got that one nailed down. And so what do you see? And people who love planning, people who are planning to have a child, they wait for the child to arrive before the nursery, right? Because if you did try that, this would be the result. <laughs> people would be fairly frustrated. What you see God doing is he plans in advance for his creation. But a lot of the problems we have in our lives is we put the cart before the horse. Okay? We commit ourselves to things before we have created a budget that it's going to fit into. Before we've created the time that that thing is going to fit into. And ergo, the headaches that we experience. If you're going to make something, create the space that it's going to occupy. What's also interesting is, if you recall the atmosphere, it has an ozone layer. Now, what is the function of the ozone layer? The ozone layer, believe it or not, traps certain things in, keeps certain things in, and keeps other things out. Boundaries. But I'm going to leave that one alone. Space. If you're going to make something, create space to accommodate it. Day three. Anybody remember what he does in day three? Vegetation. Vegetation. All the things they're going to need to eat, God produces in day three. There is not a life form on the planet. There's nobody saying they're hungry. He's emphasizing the point of pre-provision. Before the need. It's all provided. Can you imagine if we lived our lives this way? Can you imagine if we put that much focus, determination, and anticipating into what it is we're creating? What, the, what a difference it would make. Day four. What does he give us in day four? He gives us the sun and the moon. What has God essentially done? He's given us the gift of time. Okay? Extremely sobering time is. For example, when I say, it's 2.48. We've been sitting here for 18 minutes. See how orienting that is. And then, finally now in day five, now we have sea creatures. So he's beautifying his creation. We have birds. Then in day six, we have land creatures. And then, we get the creation of the man. Yes, friends, I believe Adam was fine. <laughs> I have every reason to believe that. Adam is coming directly from the hand of God. Adam was a beautiful specimen. Put this here to remind me. I want you to also notice the pattern of creation. So God is building. Okay? He's building the space to worship in, him in. So first he gives the gift of light. You say, oh, we'll worship you now. No, no, hold on. Then, of course, he gives us the gift of space. All right, now we'll, no, 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 hold on just one second. Okay, and then, of course, he gives us the vegetation. And it's building. Okay, I'm getting it now. No, no, look at these life forms. Then he gives us the life form. And then, of course, he creates the man. And now you're like, okay, you've got to be done now. You know, I'm ready to worship. And then he gives us the woman. <laughs> 
Yes, friends, I think Eve was beautiful. <laughs> She's coming direct from the hand of God. Eve had to have been something else. And as soon as the man and the woman are created, what does God give them the gift of? Purpose. God gives them their purpose. So I'm going to take three seconds just to say, what was the purpose that God gave them? So you can read it. Can you see it? Can you even see that? And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. That's such of a harsh word today. We think dominion. But he was talking about dominion with love. Okay, so let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. This earth is yours to make better. Dominate it. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, and God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it, make it better, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth on the earth. Some words I want to draw your attention to. The first is image, okay? So I said he gave us a purpose. Now, we were made in his image. What is the image of God? Who said it? Can somebody say it back there loud again? Love. Who said it? Love. Love. My good friend Frank said it. What is God's image? Love. Now, do we have some scripture to back that up? So if we go to 1 John 4, 8, it says, He that loveth not knoweth not God. For God is love. The image of God is love. Why is that so important? Because if I'm human and my mating partner is human, when we reproduce, guess what we're going to reproduce? A human. Okay, but if I'm made in the image of love and my, my partner is made in the image of love, when we reproduce, guess what we're going to reproduce? Love. God was commanding us to make love. But before we get all nebulous and lost, we need some structure here. And real quickly, what is the definition of love? Because that's confusing humanity nowadays. What is the definition of love? So let us go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. Let's let God and his word define this for us. In 1 John 5, verse 3, it reads, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. All right? So it's his commandments. Well, that's interesting. So if I go to Exodus, how many commandments do I have? Ten. I have ten commandments. Well, what's interesting is if I go over to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke squeeze those ten commandments down to how many commandments? Two commandments. What are those two commandments? Okay? Two commandments. But then, if I go to Romans, Galatians, and James, they squeeze those two commandments down to one commandment. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. God's commandments is to love. He com we live under a command to make love. To be loving as outlined by his word. Do you get that? That is our purpose. 
And in John chapter 3, verse 11, it reads, For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And verse 12 says, Not as Cain. Not as Cain. So he was thinking of the Genesis account. We live, we got this command from the beginning. We have to live lives that are loving. That we, we have to produce things that bear the image of God. When we're doing that, it's a natural high. Does that make sense? All right. Then on day seven, and this is why I was talking about that whole building issue. God has just created a world. And he's created this space of worship. And on day seven, he fills himself with that space or into that space. So we have the creation of the Sabbath. Now, a lot of times people struggle with, hey, how do you define, you know, what exactly is the Sabbath? And this is the best way I've found to describe it. First and foremost, I remember as a young person, I used to hate the Sabbath. I grew up as an Adventist. I used to hate the Sabbath. There was nothing to do on the Sabbath. Now that I'm older, now I still hate the Sabbath because there's too much to do. <laughs> I sometimes joke that Sunday is like our real day of rest, you know? Um, but there's so much stuff to do. You know where I started falling in love with the Sabbath and I'm still in love with the Sabbath? I fell in love with the Sabbath in college. I remember you would be so super busy. Um, you, uh, in order to get good grades, we had imposed this rule where you could only sit at the dinner table for 30 minutes, okay? You could only sit at the dinner and then you'd have to get up no matter what. But come Friday afternoon, come Friday afternoon, things would slow down on the campus. And now you could sit at that table and settle the world's affairs. No more worried about financial uh, clearance. No more worried about exams. All you were focused on is, this is a moment to kick back, relax, and have a moment with God. And friends, for that matter. So imagine for a moment if, 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 if you were burdened with the task of having a meeting place with people. Imagine if, if God wanted a holy place with his people, right? Well, think about the holy places on this planet, right? First of all, there would be geographical limitations to getting to this holy place, right? And then a lot of times with holy places, they get dominated by someone powerful, right? And if this, this place would be extremely important, so God would want access to it as quickly as possible. Well, thank God it's not us solving this problem, it's God. So he can put this meeting place in time. Amen. And now it's equidistant to everyone. You can get to it at the speed of thought along the path of faith. Amen. He's not going to force you into the space. You've got to choose it. But it's right there as soon as you need it. Does that make sense? It's a cathedral in time. Amen. It's also like a hot date. So often some people like they burden the Sabbath, you know. But you can see, if I was getting ready for a hot date, I would want to get all the distractions out of the way. I don't want to watch the Super Bowl if my, if, if my significant other is coming, you know? I want to make sure the place is clean because I don't want to have to, I don't want to look at dishes while I'm entertaining. It's a hot date and I don't want any distractions. 
I just want to be with that person. All right, so let's summarize what we've covered so far. We mentioned that there were creation principles in that Genesis account. All right, we talked about space, pre-provisions, the creation of life. We talked about man being given a purpose, a blueprint. Man given a weekly holiday. But then in Genesis chapter 3, it actually is going to explain why the challenges. All right? Okay. So some points that I want to emphasize. I want you to notice how God ordained for us to be connected. Connected to one another. All right? Connected to him. He explains our place in nature. And our job was to protect nature. Make it more beautiful. He connects us to a purpose and he connects us to him. God's creation stood to be one connected entity. Now that's very significant. It's as if had we followed God's plan, we were going to be a factory system producing love. Every family producing love. Every person just producing products of love. And the result would have been a world that reflects the image of God. Love. Can you imagine what that world was going to look like? Okay. And so now we have to discuss the neurobiology of addiction. Neurobiology of addiction. Okay, we're going to talk for another 20 minutes. Then you guys are going to get a break, okay? So just another 20 and then you guys are going to get a break. All right. So, before a gentleman by the name of Phineas Gage, it was fairly difficult for scientists to appreciate the fact that a physical part of the brain could actually explain behavior, morals, and etc. So then along came in 1878 Dr. Paul Broca. He was a famous French neurologist. And he identified parts of the brain that he clustered into what was called, what he called the limbic lobe. So he, he, he's famous for coining that term limbic. But when he was coming up, it was in vogue to talk about lobes. So he said limbic lobe. Um, then along came Phineas Gage. And for those of us in neuroscience, this is a very, very famous case. Because you see, for me to understand the functions of the human brain, um, I would have to go through IRB, and this is what the application would sound like. It'd say, um, well, guys, what I want to do is, what's your name? Susan. Susan? I would, um, what I want to do is, I want to understand how Susan's brain works. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to damage a portion of it, and I'm going to see what changes take place and what functions disappear. What do you guys think? You think that... Council would 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 you approve that? You'd approve it. <laughs> I take it you guys aren't related. <laughs> She's like, I want to learn. <laughs> but Susan's family might not be so uh, approving. Okay. So then along came Phineas Gage. So Phineas Gage, at the time, he's this 25-year-old railroad worker. It is said by most accounts that he was a fairly responsible person. The mere fact that he's a foreman at 25 attests to how dependable he was. Well, that instrument that he is holding is what's called an iron tamping rod. And he was working with that rod and dynamite. It's a bad combination. So the blast goes off, and that rod goes through his head. 
Okay? And the reason why we're talking about it is because, believe it or not, he lives. He doesn't even lose consciousness. This is what the rod looked like going through his head. Okay? That's what they speculate. So whatever the case, the, the reason this was such of a dramatic case was because of the transition, the change that took place in his personality. Um, so what they observed was one minute he is super responsible, but now after the accident, he became somewhat more irresponsible. It's actually said that he, uh, he was uh, on display at the Barnum of the Barnum and Bailey Circus, but of the Barnum Museum. He became uh, um, uh, featured. But it highlighted part of the function of the part of his brain, which is called the orbitofrontal cortex. All right? It's speculated that that may have well been part of the brain that was, that was injured in this accident. The other contributor to us understanding some of the functions of the brain are this, is this gentleman by the name of Henry Gustas Mulesen. We call him H.M. When this gentleman was roughly about 9 or 10, you know, accounts vary, he's riding his bicycle, he falls off his bike and ends up with this gash in his head. By the time he's 16 years old, he's starting to have seizures. So he goes to the dashing neurosurgeon of the day. This is over in my home um, neck of the woods, uh, over in, uh, goes to Hartford Hospital. This guy was the head of the neurosurgery department, Dr. Scoville, at Hartford Hospital. And uh, uh, as a good doctor, what he does is um, he recommends conservative treatment. He says, you know what, why don't we try anti-seizure medications? So he tries them, and of course it doesn't work, it doesn't stop the seizures. In Dr. Scoville's day, there was a procedure that was famously being used on acutely psychotic psychiatric patients. Okay, you guys remember what that was? Frontal lobe lobotomies. Okay, and I'm not going to describe what, how that was done, and I don't have a picture of that. You guys are happy, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right? But, Scoville, like you all, was horrified by this procedure because in addition to you know, knocking out the, um, the, the frontal lobe of the brain, it would actually rob them of their personality. It was effective in calming them down, but they would lose their personality, and he was horrified by that. He postulated, hey, if we would focus and understand exactly the areas that were involved and only maybe take out those areas, maybe the person would, res re would res retain more of their function. And so that's what he proposed to HM when the medications didn't work. Well, believe it or not, I mean, this was radical. So he actually takes him through this radical surgical procedure and um, effectively resuscitates him. But when HM awakens from this surgery, no matter how many times you introduce yourself to HM, it's like you're meeting him for the first time, as far as he's concerned totally eradicates his memory formation, okay? So, unlike with Phineas Gage, where there was only one physician kind of tracking some of these developments, with HM, um, Dr. Scoville enlists the assistance of Dr. Brenda Milner, a world-class neuroscientist um, coming from, I believe, McGill up in Canada. So she immediately enrolls HM into a study that studies him for the rest of his life. Poor guy finally died in 2008 recently, but that was not enough for the research community. What they did was they actually harvested his brain. 
and they're in the process of generating ultra-high resolution images of his brain just to, to increase our understanding of how the brain works. So major contributor to our understanding of the brain. Um, and so now we went from Paul Broca, who was talking about a limbic lobe, to James Pepez, who roughly in about the 1930s, he actually identified a few more brain structures and now called it the limbic system. So let me show you, and of course the, de the definition of the limbic system is it integrates emotion, learning, executive function, and memory. All right, let's get a picture of the limbic system. So what I want you to notice is we have a covering brain, we call that a cerebrum, but we have a underbrain, a subcortical brain that we call our limbic system. This is what's called the, um, oh man, this is what we call our hippocampus. And this was the structure that two-thirds of it was removed with our patient um, HM. Um, but this, this structure obviously is very critical in memory formation. So again, you have a covering brain, but then you have a subcortical brain, all right? And you want to know that when we are functioning optimally, there is top-down control, okay? There's top-down control. So it's not the under system that is driving my behavior, it's my covering brain. Meaning, man, let me not be too crass, but man, I'd, I'd love to just start yelling. But no, we don't start yelling. We say because my covering brain is, no, that wouldn't be appropriate. That's not a good thing to do. Let's, let's listen. Let's act circumspect. I don't care one word about what that guy is saying, but let me act like I actually care. <laughs> this is the covering brain, you know, that is functioning. The problem becomes when the underbrain is functioning, okay? So, the whole reason why we're talking about the limbic system in the first place is because I want to talk to you about your pleasure center, okay? The pleasure center. That's really what we want to get to today. Um, so, you want to know that the pleasure center basically is this circuit right here. So, we have the ventral tegmentum. What is that neurotransmitter that plays such of an important role in addiction? Anybody know it? Who said it? Dopamine, my good friend over here. All right, so dopamine plays a very important role in um, addiction. Did I hear sertraline too? Was somebody yelling sertraline? So of course, sertraline does play a role, but the reason I brought up dopamine is because in the ventral tegmental area, there is uh, a high, a large amount of concentration of neurons that use that neurotransmitter, dopamine. Well, this area will project to the nucleus accumbens, all right? And the nucleus accumbens plays a very, very important role in addictions. In fact, substances that are addictive, that are addictive, will have a tendency of increasing dopamine at the level of the nucleus accumbens. Okay, so you want to be aware of that. Um, the amygdala is also part of the limbic system. And the way the amygdala works is it tends to assign significance to memories, okay? It will tend to assign significance in memories. So I look outside, I see wavy grass, and immediately my fight or flight system is activated because I remember the last time I saw wavy grass, there was a snake in it. 
And so I know not to go into analysis mode. I know to be knowing exactly where the exits are and marking who is the slowest person in this room because <laughs> that's the only person I need to beat, right? Okay? So that's what the amygdala does. But I talked to you about the nucleus accumbens. And so what I want to do now is help you understand what happens with addictions. Addictions on a whole, I'm going to use the illustration of cocaine and or methamphetamines. But if someone takes a hit of crack or methamphetamines, it's going to spike the level of dopamine in their nucleus accumbens, right? Spike it. The unfortunate part is it plummets fairly quickly. Let's estimate this at like 15 minutes if we're talking about cocaine, right? So it plummets. The sad part is, and then will actually sit lower than where the person started, okay? So the person now is feeling pretty sad and down. But not only are they sad and down, they're also recalling how good they felt just a second ago, okay? And so that drives them to try it again. This time, of course, it doesn't go up quite as high, still very high, and then again, it sits below baseline. And so that keeps driving you to keep trying it, all right? Now, contrast that with what I call life's natural enhancers. You know that you know, there are natural behaviors that we do that we get a dopamine hit from? Um, what are some of those behaviors? Exercise. Exercise. Anything else? There's always a pervert in the group. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But sex, yeah. So there's exercise, there's sex. These are things that will spike dopamine. But for a good deal of time, it doesn't necessarily shoot up as high. It shoots up more like this. But notice how longer, how much longer the dopamine will stay up with those kinds of natural enhancers. Now, what is this red line all about? The significance of the red line is this is how the, the dopamine level increases when you have drugs of abuse on board. Notice you can't experience the same amount of pleasure from these natural enhancers when drugs are on board. Can you see that? Okay. So just something for you to be aware of. Next, I want to introduce you to the orbitofrontal cortex. Where did we first meet this orbitofrontal cortex? With Phineas Gage, with the spike going through his head, right? And so, what is the function of the orbitofrontal cortex? All right, it helps to control impulse, right? It helps us to understand what are the social and cultural mores, all right? Helps us to appreciate the consequences of one's actions. Can you see why we start thinking, hey, there may be a biological basis for addictions? Because when we're thinking about addicts, isn't it comical how we're preaching to them? Hey, man, you may not go to heaven. Can they appreciate the consequences? <laughs> you know? Um, um, so the other issue is we talked about inculcation of social and cultural mores. And so you want to, so how exactly does this look? Well, it's Thanksgiving. And, you know, you guys are all seated around the table. And everyone knows that Sue is on to her third spouse, right? Everybody knows this, but everyone knows not to say anything. Okay, because why? Your orbital frontal cortex is functioning. Now, Grandpa, on the other hand, his is kind of loosening a little bit. <laughs> right? And so he's like, Sue, is this the third or fourth one? You know? <laughs> All right? Because the orbital frontal cortex is starting to loosen a little bit. My favorite part of the brain, 
the prefrontal cortex. And it performs a function we call executive functioning. And what exactly is executive functioning? Well, I have a list of things to do, but some are more important than others. So it's this part of the brain that helps me to sequence things, okay? Critical part of the brain. Helps us to adapt to change. For those of us who work with addicts in treatment, isn't it comical when we have any sort of change in their schedule? <laughs> All hell breaks loose, you know? Because adapting to change is an issue, you know? And last but not least, there's delayed gratification. Delayed gratification. So this is the part of the brain that helps us with delayed gratification. So if you guys have read the book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Steven Sapolsky, he talks about this experiment where you have a researcher sitting at a table with a toddler and uh, the to on the table there's a marshmallow and the researcher says to the um, toddler, you can eat the marshmallow, but if you wait till I come back, then I'll give you two marshmallows. Now what would you guys have done? Would you have eaten the one, bird in the hand versus two overhead? Well, what the study had essentially done was it was able to separate those group of, of toddlers into those that would eat one versus those that would wait for two. And then these diligent researchers actually followed those toddlers 20 years forward. And what they noticed with the group that were able to wait for two is that they were much more self-assertive, they were much more successful. What was the quality that they had just identified? They had the ability to delay gratification. They could delay gratification. This is that part of the brain that helps us delay gratification, okay? Critical part of our brain. All right, and so uh, Dr. Schultz um, talked about an experiment where you teach a monkey or a, 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 an animal a task. When the bell rings, they perform the task and they get that treat. Where in this scheme do you think they first experienced dopamine? Who said it? The when the bell rings. When the bell rings, okay? So even when the bell rings, in anticipation of the reward, they get a little jolt of dopamine. Now, how does that jolt function? What does it do for them? Is that the euphoric, ah, oh, high that comes along with a dopamine rush? But it's the focusing, okay? That's one of the things that dopamine does. It focuses you and motivates you to overcome obstacles to attain the reward, okay? So that's, that's why men wash dishes. That's why men wash dishes. There's some truth to that. But keep that on the down low, man. Don't put it on blast, you know? My goodness, man. Shame, 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 shame. He's going to tell all our secrets like that, guys. What a shame. But it's true. Um, Dr. Phillips over at UC uh, Carolina, what he did was he actually injected dopamine into the... Um, reward system of animals and notice that now they would start drug-seeking behavior. So of course, what is drug-seeking behavior for a rat? Well, of course, they bar press and then the drug gets dispensed. And so when they're given dopamine, then they start bar pressing. What this highlights is just the role of dopamine in stimulating drug-seeking behavior. All right, and then this slide, what it highlights is just that it's one thing for you to um, know that if you bar press, you're going to get the drug, right? It's a whole other for it to not be certain you're going to get the reward when you bar press, all right? So when you introduce probability into the equation, 
Um, and so what are some examples of that? So gambling, for example, sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. But when you win, the rush is even more powerful. And it's like that with drugs, too. Because sometimes you know the connection's going to be there, other times you do not. Okay. Now, I realize there may be some folk um, who are in recovery in the audience. And there may be the possibility that I may trigger you in this message. And so I then have to be responsible and help you understand what do you do with that triggering. In the event that you are triggered, I encourage you not to focus on the positive aspect of the trigger. In the 12 steps, what we talk about is play it forward. So go past the pleasurable feeling and go to the negative consequences. That's where you want to focus on, all right? So, all right, so just, just uh, emphasizing uncertainty plus anticipation leads to um, a powerful reward. The other issue is uh, Dr. Mole and Dr. Piazza when they injected glucocorticoids into the reward system, now they saw drug-seeking behavior. What are the implications of that? Glucocorticoids are a stress hormone. And what they're highlighting is the fact that when you are stressed, it can cause drug-seeking behavior. And this is part of the rationale of why when you are in rehab, part of the purpose of rehab is to provide a structured environment, but also a protective environment to minimize your exposure to stress, okay? Because stress can be a trigger. All right, and so now we come to addictions. So, being true to my word, it is now 319, you like that. <laughs> and what you guys can do is, there are those of you who need to shake up, you know, wake up a little bit. Um, so why don't you take um, five to seven minutes, but then there are those of you who may have some questions, so now would be a good time for you to ask, uh, questions on what I've presented thus far. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.